Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Army veteran Sarah Poticha, a successful entrepreneur and leadership consultant, wife and mother. Sarah is also a graduate of West Point, having attended in one of the first classes of women admitted into the academy. Sarah shares her unique experiences and life lessons in her fantastic book, West Point Woman, How Character is Created and Leadership is Learned. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Glad to be here. Happy to be here. You and I recently connected through Dr. Bethany Miller, a previous podcast guest. And Dr. Miller was really enthusiastic about your success as an entrepreneur, speaker, and leadership consultant to include Fortune 100 and 200 companies, but also as an author of your fantastic book, West Point Woman, How Character is Created and Leadership is Learned. Now, I read your book and attacked it with a highlighter, and I am so grateful that we're having this opportunity to discuss West Point women more in depth. Um, So people may not know that I actually did four years at West Point, but that was when my dad was stationed there and I was in middle school. (laughs) But you did a proper four years at West Point. So let's start off with where you're from originally and what your experiences were that led you to applying to West Point and becoming a part of the long gray line. Well, I grew up in a family that really uh, emphasized education. Both my parents got PhDs. And so it was kind of um, told to us, me and my three brothers, um, repeatedly growing up, you're smart, you're going to college, you're paying your own way. So (laughs) we all had to come up with a way to, you know, get a scholarship or something that was just something we were programmed to do. And I grew up in primarily in Wisconsin, but my mother got a uh, college uh, opportunity to teach near in Boston. And so in my high school years, I was in, in a suburb of Boston. And um, my dad came home one day and said, the academies has, has started to accept women. And then his infamous words, it will be a unique experience for a woman. And um, I was searching at the time for something that would be more than just go to a good school, but something that had some meaning. And uh, because I wasn't that far from West Point, I called ahead of time, got to go up there, got to meet the cross-country coach who was forming a team. And I really kind of got awed by the place. I knew from the minute I got there, though, because I'm hanging out with another female, Cleve at the time, or the freshman, and uh, I knew it wasn't going to be easy because I remember getting into her room and I go, are we safe yet? And she goes, no, not really. <laughs> These people going to knock on your door. And, but there was something awe-inspiring about the place. And I thought, you know, let me give it a whirl. Let me go through the process of applying. And I did get in. I applied to other academies. I think I was on the waiting list for the others. But because that coach really wanted me, I think that was the, the key that kind of got me there. But I can honestly say when I got there and was screamed and yelled at, uh, nothing prepared me in life to be treated that way or, or the uh, prejudice that you ran into. I would laugh to myself and say, yeah, dad, this is unique. All right. But that's really kind of what led me there. It wasn't that I had brothers necessarily that had gone into the military. My father had served in World War II, but he didn't really talk about it. He was part of that silent generation. It was something to strive for, something to be. And I, you know, I discovered they had an honor code and that kind of fell in line with the kind of person 
that I wanted to be. Yes, and the honor code of West Point being, a cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. And virtues of leadership, 12 of which are inscribed on granite benches around West Point, include compassion, courage, dedication, determination, dignity, discipline, integrity, loyalty, perseverance, responsibility, service, and trust. In my experience, part of what the military succeeds at with leadership is building camaraderie early on. Can you speak to your experiences of entering an institution like West Point as a new cadet and what that was like cultivating camaraderie and leadership? From the minute we entered those gray gates and we're part of uh, the new cadet class and we're considered new cadets till we kind of prove ourselves, you found out very quickly that you had to rely on everybody on your, from your roommates to your squad to your platoon to many of the challenges that you were put in front of, uh, you know, whether you wanted to do them or not, they were there. And um, so I talk a lot about how that discipline of being in it together, recognizing that somebody's going to have strengths that you don't. I remember in my um, my platoon, there was someone that had been prior service. And so they had a lot of knowledge. I'd never fired a weapon before. I had brothers, you know, they went hunting, but I didn't necessarily uh, engage in that kind of thing. And so there were things that they could teach you. And so immediately you're put in a situation where to get through this incredibly difficult, challenging, competitive place, I'm going to have to rely on on other folks. As you got into the academic year, I quickly found out, you know, I thought I was smart <laughs> until I was surrounded by really, really talented people. And there were some things because the pace of the place was so competitive and you had drill and ceremony, you had all that, that um, I had to find out people that could help me with a particular class because it was quicker to learn it that way than try to sit there with a book in front of me and try to figure it out on my own. And I think all those things kind of translated into life, translated into how I led um, my soldiers, because we would get, as an ordinance officer, a logistician, I had big, big requirements, huge organizations and the own, and big missions with not enough people to do it. And you had to turn on a dime if you had to. And so you had to kind of cultivate that in your soldiers, that you got to look out for each other. You've got to do your job and we've got to rely on you so the whole unit can do well. And I tell a story in there that this is so in part of who we are that um, many years later, one of my classmates comes to my husband's funeral. And then a few years later, I saw him again. And he was a little more open about what it was like to be his roommate. It wasn't always easy because he was a true engineer, dress right dress. He wanted things set up that way. And when you get to be an upperclassman, you give yourself a little slack, but he did not. And then I said, so why did you come to his funeral? And he says, because that's what West Pointers do. Mm. And it was this idea that he had been my roommate. He had been there for me. I'm going to remember him and his family when the time came. So it becomes this kind of uh, thing that you continually do in your life. And, and that's where you can accomplish more because you've relied on people. You're humble enough to accept the help. And, and believe me, West Point had a way of humbling me particular so that you're willing to accept the help so you can have a better result. And I think everyone needs to take that to heart and use that in the way they lead, the way they work in their organizations, because otherwise you have 
siloed kind of operations. I mean, think of the alternative to that competitiveness Mm -hmm. instead of focusing on what the ultimate goal of the organization is so you can be successful, whether that be profitable or if it's a nonprofit, uh, you know, reach more people that you're trying to reach. So it's those kind of things that, again, who would have thought But right when you're 17, 18 years old, you're, you're learning those things by relying on your roommate to help you polish your shoes, put your uniform on. Right. Right. And part of what I appreciate also about your book is that you don't have to have a military background to appreciate the lessons or apply them to your life. And it's not about having this uh, organization. If you work in the civilian sector, that it needs to have the structure of this militant vibe, you share a story about going in for a job interview and you're being sized up and the resume, a West Point graduate, and you are five foot two, you're petite, blonde, feminine, and how that juxtaposition of how we quote unquote, see a veteran or a West Point graduate. And the man interviewing you said, you can't just come in here and bark orders to people. And that you so beautifully responded with, that's not what this is about. It's about what is the mission and empowering the people around me to complete this mission. And I really think that is so applicable to to any company. Oh, yes. And I think another impetus to write the book was the idea that there still exists these myths about veterans, particularly women veterans. We're very, very unique because there's so few of us, right? Mm-hmm. And people will still, they'll say, oh, yeah, you did that thing at West Point, you know, or they'll say, oh, I would never have thought you went there. But if you really know the best leaders that have been in the military and stayed in the military, they're usually pretty humble people because they know that's what it takes to connect with people, which is the real thing that you have to do with leadership so you can influence them. Mm-hmm. So I think I wrote it, too, because, you know, he, he I think he doubted that I was had actually done what I did because it, it just didn't, in his mental model, I didn't fit in. And so it's it's partly in the book, I tell some of these stories to kind of expose that we still, uh, veteran women veterans come up with this question, you know, like, I guess you had to go in the military or something, you know, there's some kind of catch to it. They mm-hmm. don't quite understand the kind of responsibility that you are given and often at very young ages or the kind of situations, particularly those coming out now that have been in combat, you know, I mean, that's life-changing. Yeah, it's such a deployed wartime military, and that comes with so much responsibility and change. Uh, Another part of your book, West Point Woman, that I appreciated and found so relatable was how candid you were with personal setbacks and admitted failures. Can you speak to the importance of failure, as you say in your book, uh, how success is built on failure, on trying, failing, learning, and trying again, because I think a lot of people can relate to this in the era of COVID and change, and maybe even for you with your consulting work. Absolutely. Uh, Most of my speaking engagements are done by Zoom or some kind of platform, and you had to be willing to spin. You had to be willing to adapt to this new environment where the the big speaking engagements, I've had many of them postponed now over a year. In some, I gave the talk through a a virtual means just as a sign of goodwill. I felt very bad because they were losing all kinds of folks because their people are associated with audiovisual and uh, event planning. You empathize with uh, your customer, and I think that builds this long-term relationship. And um, I think sometimes it kind of 
uh, normalizes that life is about ups and downs and challenges and difficulty. And so what I have found anytime I face something like that is I go back to a lot of the things that I had to experience at the academy and figure out in real time and apply those kind of lessons of, I may not get it the first time, I may not do this really well, but I'm going to keep trying, I'm going to keep moving forward because the other option is to fall back. And I'm not going to do that because, you know, I have people depending on me. You know, I think it's always deciding what is it that you want to accomplish and how can you put that around people that are depending on you. And as a speaker, I know that many people still need to hear the hope in in people's voices to understand that uh, this is temporary. Most of the setbacks in life are temporary. But if you create a plan, work a plan, it's going to release things in your brain that will get you going again and get you refocused. And so it's a good life story. And then sometimes you'll look back on those incredibly difficult times in life and go, you know, that's when I grew the most. That's when I really found out who I was at my core. And so I think those things can fashion you into someone that can then climb the next mountain because inevitably there's going to be one. You mentioned empathy, and I think that's such an important quality for leaders. And I think it's overlooked, but I also think it leans into what you mentioned in your book, and that's emotional intelligence. I think when you embody leadership qualities like empowering people with responsibility, setting the example, being a good listener and communicator... Uh, If you don't have the emotional intelligence to back all that up, leadership can fall apart, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, There's so many great authors on emotional intelligence. I've been teaching it for many years. I employ it in assessments um, with my coaching folks. And it probably is the biggest indicator of your overall success in life and in professional life, personal life, because basically emotional intelligence allows you that ability to connect with people at their feeling level. In other words, you communicate to them that you know how they feel, and you may even to a certain extent feel what they feel. And that's so important because it's like giving them, as uh, uh, Dr. Covey used to say, psychological air. In other words, you're being heard at your core. And fundamentally, leadership is influence, as John Maxwell says, um, nothing more, nothing less. So if I don't connect with you on an emotional level, I'm not going to have the kind of influence that um, I would if I didn't make that effort. And so it requires you to stop thinking about yourself so much and really listen to what people are saying and not just the words, but everything. Take in what they're saying in the tone of voice, their gestures and their their facial gestures and their hand motions. You know, if they're sitting like this, with their arms crossed, they're definitely telling you that you're not engaging them. And so it can be an incredibly powerful tool when you accept the fact that leadership is influence. It's not me being right. It's me being able to influence the behaviors of other people. And it can be incredibly powerful because if you remain calm with someone that says it's really upset um, because you learn certain techniques then people, there's things that happen in our brain where they'll actually mimic your behavior. So now all of a sudden you're getting them to calm down and they're not even aware how this happened. And it's not to manipulate. It's really, we can't have conversation if we're both, you know, have our ire up, so to speak. We have to get to a place of focus on what the real issue is and me understanding your point of view and you understanding mine. 
And I think I was fortunate that um, one of the people that kind of mentored me at the academy was someone who was very attuned to this. And it's it's ironic, you know, because all around me at the time were negativity. I had a negative squad leader. I had an unsupportive uh, tactical officer. And here this psychology professor took an interest in me because he was high in emotional intelligence. He was willing to kind of encourage this struggling plea freshman who's, who's struggling, but he took an active interest in me. And that was the first time that I'd seen it in somebody other than my family to actually show me leadership. And I was like, when I'm an officer, I'm going to be like that, you know, because that's what people needed to do to connect people, to get them to rise to another level of performance. Under him, I wanted to just do anything to be even better for him in the classroom. And the same thing happens whether it's an officer and a soldier, you know, an airman, it, it really doesn't matter. People will do more when they fundamentally understand that you truly care about them. And it comes across in you, your words, the way you even look at someone. It's worth getting good at. And it can be learned. See, you know, your IQ is going to stay about the same thing, but your EIQ can be developed. They've proven this. So. I love that. Uh, I know you're still active in the West Point alumni community. Do you know if emotional intelligence is something that's fostered in today's training? I know that in terms of the Army curriculum, which I'm sure West Point kind of aligns with, they're doing a lot in this whole leadership, um, taking some of the best lessons of uh, the best leadership gurus out there and intertwining it into what the officer training is, because my friend was a West Point grad and very involved in that. And so they were bringing uh, many of these leadership tenants that we now kind of accept as the constant, you know, emotional intelligence, um, things about resilience into what the officers are actually learning. So I thought that was really powerful. It's evolved. So that's good. <laughs> that is good. How do you find balance in giving of yourself as a leader without being taken advantage of? How do you set those boundaries? Yeah, I had to learn the hard way. Um, in some cases, um, there was a time where we would, when I was in Germany for my first duty assignment, and I had, uh, again, this big, big uh, logistic, we had mechanics and stuff, and we'd be out in the field for six, eight weeks. And so my thought was, oh, well, encourage, you know, my soldiers with going out and getting some candy because they always would love candy. But then it became like their expectation of me. And I was like, you know, this isn't what I need to be doing. I need to inspire them. I need to do a little bit harder work. And so I began to just spend time talking to them. And what I loved about the Army is they all had a story. It's like they were the a cross section of the United States. So you'd have somebody in a you know, New Jersey guy to somebody who's coming right off the farm to somebody who was from the Appalachian Mountains who told me, ma'am, my first shoes that were new came to me from the Army and connecting to them on that level. And then you do find that many of them have struggles in their marriage. They have struggles in other things. And there's this wider need to connect with their family members because the family members have to take care of all the kids while they're gone for these extended periods of time. And it, and that's where I found I could have the greatest impact. And I began to work with my company commander to do something for the family members because that's what's affecting his abilities or her ability to stay focused. 
And so it was really quite eye-opening because I realized they're not just someone that is just going to immediately respond to me. I had to work to earn their respect. And I thought I knew that, but I knew that how that looks isn't just catering to every whim. And it's, it's finding out what will make them most successful for this mission. What are the things and the hindrances and how come I, how can I get the resources to them? And in many cases, it was, you know, things that I had to go great extent for, for example, to get them the repair parts to, you know, so they could actually do their job. And it was challenging and difficult, but that's what was blocking them from being successful. And what time period was this? How long was your service? So uh, started the academy. I was in the fourth graduating class of women. So I graduated in 1983, then was immediately commissioned. And then I stayed in the military till about the um, 19, January 1990. Um, I was uh, then a MALO officer, which meant I was in the reserves for West Point recruiting um, and helping people through the process of getting accepted, young, young kids getting accepted into the academy. But the challenge is we move quite a bit corporately. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time you change states, you had to find a reserve unit to be a part of. And it just got to be too cumbersome. And I was very involved then in my career. So it was time to not do that anymore. But I was so happy for my experience. And of course, I've always stayed involved in helping veterans and transitioning veterans and um, helping them through that process. Share with us your transition out of the Army and starting your consultancy business, your career building of working with Fortune 200, 100, and even 50 companies. It's a funny thing. I think um, many veterans struggle when they first get out of the military because they, they there's a plan for them. You know, you do this, you're going to go here, you're going to go there. And all of a sudden, you got to kind of figure it out on your own. And my first husband and I, we really initially did struggle, but we eventually, because we kept at it, um, got a hold of a, a gentleman that helped us in this idea of fashioning your career based on your passions. And boom, you know, wow, that just makes so sense. You're obviously going to do better if you focus on the areas that you really love. And so you kind of do some soul searching. And I have always loved leadership. Um, those are the classes I just ate up at West Point and I continued to read about them. It was just a passion of mine. And so I said, you know, it's going to be in that area. And, um, the other component of this career counselor was this idea of networking and the power of networking. And the idea is it's, as you're looking for a job, you're looking for a fit that will use your primary areas and giftedness. And then you try to find, you target some companies and then you connect to people who might know people that can connect you with decision makers, but you go in trying to solve problems that you love to solve. And this networking idea really took off because there's a, in many major city, there's going to be a West Point society. And some of those, it's interesting because again, this is now 15, 20 years after I graduated from West Point. I found these people very, very helpful in Richmond, Virginia, where I was at the time. And, and then th- it wasn't just West Pointers. They would know Naval Academy. They would know other people that it were more established in the area, had made the transition. And then they would recommend you to someone. And so it was their social capital, so to speak, that got me interviews. And using this methodology, the first interview I had when I transitioned was with a senior vice president of a company. 
I didn't go in the traditional apply, wait to be, you know, interviewed. I had that and they created a role with me. I, I, you know, and the one thing was, is I was really good at taking orders. I would do exactly what this career counselor would do because I would refer people to them and, and they wouldn't have the same success. And I said, did you do what he said? I had to do the uncomfortable and have a bunch of meetings and meet people, you know. Uh, he says he always loved working with vets because we listen. And so I, that's how I started in a company. It ended up not being the right fit in the long run, but it got me that exposure. And from there, I kept networking. I kept developing my network and connecting with people and eventually got into a consulting firm owned and run by a West Pointer. And he initially gave me just a client or two and I developed it. I kept working at it. Again, I was working my area of love and expertise. And that led to a huge contract with the state of Virginia that I did a great deal of work. And I got so busy, I had to hire other people. And they would tell me, well, you know, you're so talented, you should consider doing this in corporate America. And I said, you know, I do need corporate experience. And so I got hired into a corporate job doing something similar. But I always missed having the independence of because when I was in that consulting firm, I had my own office, I could work my own hours and with children, I needed to have that flexibility. So that kind of eventually led me, you know, in a few years after you get some of these things done and get a couple kids in college, then you can have your own consulting practice again. It was always back me because once you've been an entrepreneur, you kind of enjoy that. And eventually that's what worked out um, as it worked out because of a downsizing, which felt as a negative right then, I was forced to consider other alternatives. And I had heard about a, an opportunity to go after a big RFP with the state of Virginia. And I partnered with some larger firms so we could get the contract. But I was basically the person running it, developing curriculum. It was leadership based. It was about educating veterans uh, are actually companies on on how to hire veterans and make them successful. So all the things that I had learned up to that point kind of fell into this. And, and from there, I would get corporate people interested in, in my consulting because they see me on stage. I was in front of them. And sometimes I would get people interested in that or I had other clients that referred me. So I think it was a combination of getting really good, knowing what you're really good at, doing it really well, asking for referrals, networking, and then opportunities started to occur. And eventually I decided now I finally have that opportunity to write my book. And that was an adventure. And, you know, I wrote it in a very quick, short period of time and things began to happen. And um, I love the fact that it was many male classmates that promoted me within their companies that those companies then hired me. And because I also had that background, not just as a uh, leadership practitioner trainer, so to speak, I was a consultant in these companies. I can bring that skill set to the companies that I'm at. So like currently I'm working with one company that I was a keynote for, but I have done so much work in leadership practitioner. And given that it's COVID, uh, that seemed like a route to follow as well. And now I've got a contract with that. So you've got to be willing to take some risks and do what you really love. And I think success tends to follow. Oh, I align with that so strongly in terms of the networking opportunities within the veteran community. For myself, I'm pursuing TV writing in Los Angeles, and I volunteered with a veteran organization that focuses on connecting vets with working TV and film writers. 
And another vet approached me and said, you're always here helping out, you're so positive, and I think you'd be a good fit for working at a, a literary agency that I'm a part of. And he went on to say that he was moving forward in his writing career as a writer. He got an opportunity to work on a Netflix show. And his position as an assistant to an agent needed to be filled. And would I be interested? So I said, of course, (laughs) just get me in the room and I'll do the rest. But to have someone bypass the traditional way of submitting a resume to HR, that was a huge hurdle because these assistant jobs are so hard to get. Um... Now, of course, I had to do the work in the interview room, and I did two almost hour-long interviews, but just to get my foot in the door was facilitated through the veteran community. And I got that job, and I know it'll lead to more opportunities, and my boss has even mentioned that he only wants to work with veterans moving forward because of the skills and experiences we bring in. Right. Okay, so back to your book. West Point Woman, you have a chapter dedicated to humor. Speak about the importance of humor, especially when the stakes are high and when there's a lot on the line. You can take situations seriously, but also have an element of humor. Exactly, exactly. I think, um, and again, that gets back to emotional intelligence, because if you're sensing the mood of your team and they're down and it's difficult, that's exactly when you have to insert something that lightens things. And you know, when someone tells something funny and And a good technique is always to tell something funny about yourself because you shouldn't make someone else the object of this. The idea is you're humble enough to not take yourself too seriously and lighten the load on people. And one of the stories that I share in the book, and I think this audience in particular will understand this, hopefully, is um, the idea of even coming back to West Point years later, there's this sense of, oh, um, you know, am I going to be judged? Is somebody looking over my shoulder, you know? And as I mentioned, I had been a malo officer, was helping, uh, I was living in the state of uh, Michigan, and you had to go through training. Now, um, I had had my second daughter, and I tried to start my kids by, you know, nursing them. So I brought her with me. She was like, I don't know, three months old. And my uh Every kid I was given a sponsor. My sponsor was back at West Point and they were going to be gone, but I could stay in their place instead of the barracks with my daughter. And she hadn't had somewhere to take the baby. And so it all kind of worked out. But even so, I'm going there and I'm going to have to pump during the day my breast milk, right? And so you got, you know, the bra with the pads in it and such. And you you just have to understand, um, you even questioned yourself when you were there if you're going to put on a skirt, because you didn't want to try to look like you're uh, trying to catch a man. Um, and so you, you're always thinking about those things. I'm going to be judged. And again, we're still only a few of us male officers are women. They're mostly men. They're still making comments. Uh, they've graduated now 10, 15 years later. And they're still making, I could hear their talk about what they thought they'd had of the first female, uh, first captain, and she made a mistake and, You know, so they're still having these things. And so I'm there and some of my uh, women classmates and I, we go to the officer club for for lunch. And fortunately, I was with them. And one of them says, Sarah, you're leaking. Oh, no. (laughs) And um, so my milk had come in. 
And, you know, it's filling up my, and it's on my green shirt, my duty shirt. And I'm like, oh my gosh, now she was always a good soldier. So she said, just come to my barracks. I got another shirt and I was able to put it on. And, um, but I was like, oh my gosh, you know, um, only it would happen to me, you know, like this thing, you know, and, cause I'm a woman here at West Point, something like this is going to happen to me. But, you know, you laugh about it, you know, you, you know, you laugh over spilled milk. What are you going to do? You know, you just go on and everything. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was pretty humbled by that, but I was like, thank God I had another woman I could rely on who handed me a shirt, you know, and I could just go through the day. But there's going to be these opportunities where you put yourself out there and things don't always work out and you're going to be okay with it. Right. Right. I think it makes you more relatable too. I think people are a little bit more on your side with that tactic. Um, Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about your experiences with being in the room and being assertive as a leader over being aggressive? Yeah. And I've, um, I have a chapter on that, you know, the the extremes that I've gone to through. And if I um, came across too uh, aggressive, then it seemed to backfire. And so to be honest, I always know exactly where that line is. And it depends because it depends on that other person, their level of emotional maturity, their ability to take in feedback, to hear you. But I find that the best alternative for me is to be very clear and concise and focus on the behavior and not on the person and not and balance that with not being overly sensitive. And the only way I can take that sensitivity out so I don't come across as, oh, you know, um, she's complaining again is to take some of the techniques that I've learned through years and years of coaching people on emotional intelligence and applying them. I mean, if I don't use it, I'm not going to tell somebody else to use it, but like 10 deep breaths, you know, really calming myself down, keeping my hands open, um, my palms up while they're on my lap and leaning forward within person and being wise enough to take in the cues when you're not getting through. And sometimes the smartest thing is, is, they're not open to hearing this right now. Take a step back, go at it another direction, get, catch them at a different time and you'll be more successful. You got to remember the communication is on your, it's your responsibility to make sure the communication is heard. It's not their responsibility to hear you. So you've got to think about the person and what gets through to them. And so, you know, I teach Myers-Briggs, I teach a lot of these the disc and such, if you understand how they prefer communication, you try to speak in their language, so to speak, if they're very, they're a D dominant person, you want to be very concise. And so sometimes I've messed up because I haven't cared enough to think about how this person will receive it in the way that will, they could more likely receive it well. But when I've taken the time to really think through how this might come across, then I'm more successful. And the idea is that um, some situations don't lend themselves to having that conversation right then. So you do have to be wise enough to step away from something that could then explode. Because if they're getting irritated and agitated, you're not dialoguing. You're actually doing nothing but talking at each other. And so that's 
I think a lot of people tend to, oh, I'm going to go fight. And the idea is this whole idea that I got to win. And the idea is, no, we've got to find a way how to communicate. And so stepping back a bit is wise. And it's hard to do in the moment. And these are, you know, the two top things my, my coaches I have to work with on is emotional intelligence and, and conflict. And conflict in those and having those skills are the hardest things to teach, the hardest things to gravitate to. So you have to be able to forgive yourself and say, you know, I didn't do that one well. What can I learn about it? And then try it again and try again. Because if you accepted stuff, let's say you've just been sitting back and working with somebody that that tends to be the tendency, then you get what you get. Mm-hmm. But the first time you try the skill, they're going to question if you're really serious about it. So they're going to test you a little bit because, you know, if you lay down and kind of let things happen. So again, it's rising up to the occasion, trying the new skill, maybe not doing it perfectly, but you keep moving forward with it because you're now focused on, okay, I'm reading their body language. I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to ask an open-ended question rather than a declarative. And now now we're engaging. Boy, that wasn't as bad as I thought I could do. Good. Good job. Now I got to do it again. I love open-ended questions because it gives one the opportunity to be a good listener, which is a great leadership skill, interestingly enough. It's funny how some people, you might have been a difficult scenario or situation, but because you let them just kind of talk it out, they kind of talk themselves, you know, <laughs> out of being upset and you and you go wow I didn't have to work so hard as a you know as I thought I would you know so it is interesting so in true Sarah Poticha leadership form and in staying engaged with the veteran and West Point community you have fostered a partnership with a female-owned female-driven jewelry company and I'm teasing it here because we're going to do a special episode with this jeweler on this podcast soon but You've created an awesome opportunity, a very not what you think West Point would be open to kind of opportunity for a very lucky cadet. Can you share that story? Yes, yes. Uh, I think a lot of uh, neat factors kind of came in at once. I, I write the book. My publisher says, Sarah, you got to brand yourself, You're everything from your wardrobe to your website. And of course, as you've shown my book, it's um, the colors of West Point, black, gold and gray. And I needed to get some jewelry, went to a local jewelry store and fell in love with Frida Rothman's line. And it had chains and um, had the colors. And the first piece of jewelry that I purchased was this um, chain that reminded me of the chain around Trophy Point, where I was at West Point just for a couple of days because we arrived in July and then we have Fourth of July there. And I remember sitting there and looking across the Hudson river and going, I wonder if I could swim that far <laughs> to get out of here. <laughs> the dropping point always has a kind of uh, this double image in my mind, but the chain was embellic of the fact that I was chained there. It felt like, you know, at times. And, um, but also of the strength that I gained through it. And I fell in love with it. I started wearing it and I would get compliments and not long after that, I, I get these ideas and I call them God whispers. And um, it's like, what if you were to approach Frida Rothman and ask her to design some jewelry that was inspired by West Point and West Point women? I think there'd be a lot of people interested in buying this. And, you know, you get an idea and you go, well, she's an international jeweler. What are the chances are? Well, I did ask for her card. I kept it in my 
wallet for a couple weeks. And then she came to Louisville and I had just finished a keynote and I was like, okay, she came to that very uh, jewelry store and I got the gumption to go up and I said, all she can do is say no. Right. You know, and and talk to her. And then I told her um, what her jewelry said to me. And she goes, you know, my jewelry is inspired by the grit of Brooklyn. And she has this incredible ability to see something that you and I would see as mundane, like the manhole covers. And I know you lived in New York are the chains that the shopkeepers use to put, you know, their, um, I guess the steel things around their shops at night. Those are the things that inspired her to go make something beautiful of them. And I got to know her uh, background and I know you're going to have her on. So I'm not going to tell ruin that, but I found this kindred person and we have, I mean, here's a woman in fashion and I come from this military background. I'm in corporate America. You know, we think, what do we have in common? And, and, and she's beautiful and she's, you know, she's sophisticated and stylish. And, and I'm like, you know, I used to wear camo and all <laughs> but we formed this great friendship and we began working on, um, I got a d- group of uh, West Point women together and um, developing a design and I took her to West Point and this is before COVID. So you could actually take her there. And, and then I, I, I think I scared her, she and her team. And I was like, yeah, this is the pool I almost drowned in. And <laughs> <laughs> And they have built this beautiful um, library and I just decided we'd walk to the fourth floor and they're like, oh, you didn't tell us, you know? So she got the whole thing and then we, she got to meet some of the cadets and, and it was really neat. And so this formulation and it took some time with COVID, but at the same time, another idea pops in Sarah's head. And um, I said, it's not just enough to develop this and maybe have some of the funds from the sale of this jewelry go back to the academy or help the programs for West Point women, wouldn't it be neat to give a West Point cadet, male or female, an experience? And as it turned out, the superintendent is a female grad. I'm sorry, the dean is a female grad. And I said, first step is we've got to get her on board with this. And so we actually were able to have a meeting. It was postponed because of COVID, but we did it by Zoom and laid out the idea. And that even was fascinating because here is someone I didn't know at the time. Frida is an Orthodox Jew. Well, this Dean is a Jew and had an experience that's so interesting that I'll, I'll share it now because I don't think we to have time. She was mentioning when she was a cadet that as she was part of the Jewish choir and they went to a group where there's a lot of Holocaust survivors in Brooklyn, which is where Frida's from. This is years before she meets a Holocaust survivor who gives her her diamond ring. And she's like, Oh, I can't take your diamond ring. But she insisted. And, and she said, I want you to have it. And it was like this woman saying, I want you not to forget me. And the Dean says to us, I've never ever given that ring away. And we're talking to her about jewelry. We're talking about an internship. The fact that she had something related to jewelry was amazing. And I think jewelry is similar. It tells a story, right? And so we proposed that we would 
create an internship where they would have the exposure, and they're very, very busy in the summers anyway, to a business, an entrepreneur, fashion. Think about fashion being influenced by a West Pointer that they would have work that they had to do. And working with people on um, the dean's staff, we we found out that they've even had people go and sit on movie sets. Things have expanded for the cadet experience much more than I could ever have imagined. Um, but I said, it all started with the idea, all they can do is say no. I guess I've been in life enough that, you know, propose. And so we don't know with COVID when this will happen, but we've met all the criteria. They're interested in doing it. And we'll also give the cadet the experience of living because uh, Frida has a big house and she has a separate area that they could live there and have the experience of living in an Orthodox home and the exposure to fashion and what that takes and how creative you have to be because her, you know, she's got a manufacturing side. She's got, you know, sourcing and designing and who are your clients and how do you do that in a COVID world? Think of all the learnings that this might benefit someone because no matter how long someone's in the military, eventually they will not be. You don't know that maybe this person eventually might do procurement um, for the military or for one of the PXs or something like that. And so this skill, you don't know what that would mean. So it's going to happen. We just don't know if it'll be this summer or next summer. See, I'm so inspired by that story. I love that you had an idea, an unconventional idea, and you went with it. And look at the backstory that came out of that, especially with the dean. Right. And you taking action unintentionally benefited a group of women in such a special way. There's a link on Frida Rothman's website. Can you share a bit about that? She'll explain that I got to honor some really deserving women that have served in the military as a result. And so she'll tell you more about that whole campaign. But I have heard stories now, you know, it just... I'm so glad that it's gone this because um, when I wrote my book, it was telling my story, but I've always wanted to hear these other stories of military women. And that's what you get with, with what uh, Frida has run with the idea. Right. So that was a little teaser sidebar conversation about our upcoming special podcast episode with Frida Rothman and her collaboration with Sarah. So circling back to your book, West Point Woman, you're very candid about your experiences of failure and how success is built on failure because of the lessons you learn when you don't give up. And I have definitely struggled with failure. I mean, pursuing a career in the arts is full of failure and rejection, and there's just no guarantees. I think with COVID and so many people experiencing loss and having to figure out a new way to move forward... Your book and your experiences are really encouraging. Can you share a bit about your chapter, Fail Fast? I I always go back to the story that I include in the book about um, a really challenging physical test we had to take at the academy. It was part of uh, fourth class swimming or plebe swimming. And it isn't a nice little swim class. This is survival swimming. And one of them was a bob and travel across a 50 meter indoor pool. And the way you had to do it, though, was, of course, going to be extremely challenging. You put on fatigues at the time. That was before BDUs. But it's what we would wear out in the field, uh, shirts and pants. And of course, they're all men's sizes. So they're very big on me. And then boots. 
uh, you lace up again, they were all men's boots. And then you put on a rucksack with 40 pounds of bricks. And at the time, you know, I'm a tiny little runner. I weigh about a hundred pounds and I'm five foot two and the pool is eight feet deep. So we're supposed to jump in, get to the bottom of the pool, push off, move our arms kind of in a swimming motion and go back down and bob and travel for 50 meters. Now, I don't know if you've been in a pool lately, but 50 meters is like a really long way over 150 feet. And so the first time I jump in, do you think Sarah lands on her feet? No, I'm immediately pulled on my back by the weight of that rucksack. And I'm there staring up at eight feet of water. Now, fortunately, my mother was a, a physical educator and she made sure her kids all knew swimming and survival swimming. And I knew get out of the rucksack, get up, get some air. You're not going to do, you're not going to be able to do this right now. With the idea that if you fail this and you fail the course, you could be sent home. So failure is always on your mind there. And so I'm thinking about it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to do something different. Now I'm not a 160, 180 pound guy that seems to have no problem with this. I've got to figure it out in real time. So the second attempt, I decide to lean forward so I don't fall on my back and I actually get to the bottom of the pool. I push off. But even with my push off, I barely clear the water. I get a little oxygen in my lungs, but I know I don't have enough to go all the way down and up. So get out of the rucksack, get over to the side, be screened and yelled at by the Department of Physical Education, adding to the tension. You're going, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? So I keep telling myself, do something different. You can do something different. You can lean forward. You get a good push off. I bet you'll get oxygen that way. But even with the two failures, I was gaining some confidence because I knew I could always get out of the rucksack. I wasn't going to die. And that's an important thing to recognize in the moment. So I wasn't so much. I was just more determined, I guess. I was angry that I had to do this. But at the same time, I was, I'm getting, I'm going to figure this out. So I get the third one and I actually land with both, both feet at the same time. I push off. I get a full breath of air fill my lungs, go back down. But I can tell I'm really not moving forward because of the weight of the rucksack. And I said, you know, I'm moving my arms, but I'm not. And I'm going to say, this is going to take me forever. And an idea pops in my head. You'll make better time if you walk on the bottom of the pool. <laughs> so I do. And I push off, I get a oxygen. I go like that. And I go to the bottom, walk three more steps, push off all the way for 15 meters. And I get to the end of the pool. I throw the rucksack over on the side of the pool. And there's this big Department of Physical Education instructor looking down at me going, we've never seen anybody do it that way. Good job, cadet. <laughs> and me thinking, you know, that's really how I could have done this. But I tell that story because it would have been so easy to just throw in the towel when I failed those times. But what I think you discover in failure, having had lots of failure in life, is that is the time where you can learn and you may be learning what isn't working. Okay. It's not working doing this. So let go of it, try something else. And I think if we can embrace this idea that failure is a teacher, not a destination or something you're going to stay at, then we are, have the ability to go on and try something else. We can be creative. And a lot of times in that creativity, we're learning life skills. We're learning skills for the next challenge that, okay, um, this didn't go well, but I'll look in the past. Oh, I, I've tried different things that have kind of 
worked out. So let me begin to think a little broader here or, or see a bigger perspective. And so I, I try to employ that with the people I coach now. You know, when have you had success or when have you seen someone successful like this? And then all of a sudden their mind will start turning uh, ideas out and they'll, they'll say, yeah, how could I apply that? So it's a way and a means of not staying stuck by bracing failure as a teacher, not a destination. Right. Shift your thinking and embrace failure as an opportunity to grow in a new way. And as you say in one of the first pages of your book, which I love, this isn't about easy fixes. And to really commit about 90 days to two or three of the leadership principles you share and see what happens. So in wrapping up, just a few more questions. You have three daughters. Did any of them ever consider pursuing the military? Um, not exactly. I think I scared them a little bit because um, uh, I've taken two of them to West Point and um, kind of said this is where I nearly drowned and things like that. Uh, Gwyneth considered it my middle daughter for some time and she would have, I think all of them could have gone, you know, um, but uh, Gwyneth is my artist and, you know, you, you know, they just, it's not a track there, but she has all the discipline. And I think that a lot of people like we've talked about that are artistic have to be disciplined to be successful. So she's incredibly disciplined, uh, multitasker. She would have been phenomenal. But their dreams were different. And then um, my oldest daughter thought education and then eventually got into being a nurse. So she wants to alleviate the suffering of others. And then my youngest has always, always, I mean, since like in middle school, wanted to be in, in interior design architecture. And so she pursued that. So they kind of pursued things that were different. But I feel because I taught them the lessons I learned at West Point, the values that they've all been very independent, successful women. I'm very proud of, um, and they're doing good things in the world. And so I, I couldn't be happier. So my final question is if a young woman were to come up to you today and say, she's thinking of joining the military, what would you say to her? I'd say it's an awesome, awesome experience. And, um, I have worked with several younger women, um, in talking about that and, and ex giving them copies of my book and, and ask, answering their questions and such. And if you go to a traditional college, for example, you're not going to get the exposure to leadership as you would at one of the academies. And you will not have so many different opportunities in, unless you do a military career. You had so many jobs, your military career is so fascinating, but so many different opportunities. And um, that's a great way to grow when you're very young. And even when you're still trying to figure out what you wanna do, and so there's just so many benefits and you get that sense of doing something for someone else. You're serving your country. And that whole service attitude is a great thing to embellish. So when you join the military, I tell them you're going to learn technical skills because anymore it's become incredibly technical because we have some of the most sophisticated equipment in the world. And the leadership skills that you learn will be something that you can take for the rest of your life. So there's a lot of benefits to considering military career, even if it's just part of your life like it was mine. You will make friends forever, lifelong friends, um, and you already have this network of folks, as you and I have both experienced, that can propel you into different career opportunities. So I really think it's, it's worth considering. Sarah, you make me want to be a better person. <laughs> you do. And I encourage you all to visit Sarah's website at westpointwoman.com, 
where you'll find excellent leadership resources, including information on Sarah's speaking engagements and coaching services, and a link to purchase her book, West Point Woman, How Character is Created and Leadership is Learned. Sarah, thank you again so much for sharing your time with me. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. If you are a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.